Welcome to the Look It's Rock and Roll podcast. I'm your host, Julian Gill. I'm back with Mark Anthony Kay of Project Gemini. Mark has a new Project Gemini album coming out on April the 21st titled What Lies Beyond. I always want to say that in a 1950s sci-fi voice, you know, like the serials in black and white uh, with the cheese ball uh, kind of space theme. You know, what comes next week? What lies beyond? Yeah. Um, tell us about the title first of all, and how you came up with that, and whether it's part of the framing of the album overall or just a title for it. Um, yeah, it, the title came mainly because of the, the lyrics. Because the the lyrics of the songs were one of the most uh, one of the most set of lyrics that I've worked on. Like that, that hard. Like I, I haven't worked on lyrics that seriously in a, in a in a while. I think, uh, and the messages that I tried to put across on there, uh, I kind of looked at them as they could be interpreted in many different ways, right? So the what lies beyond, I kind of looked at it as almost like a choose your own adventure thing. Like you know, there, there were different possibilities of what could happen afterwards. You know what I mean? And that kind of album, it's it's hilarious. The album cover. I gave him no concept of what I was doing lyrically or nothing. He never heard any of the songs. I just told him the album title, and he came up with that. And the whole doorways thing that he put on there would fit absolutely perfectly with it. So it's once again, I have to say, James McCarthy is my Roger Dean, and for many reasons. But that's the thing. He he kind of almost knows subconsciously what I'm trying to go for. Yeah, you seem very much in sync with one another, a fantastic artist. I mean, what I got out of it is that what lies beyond is a great metaphor for exactly as you've just explained, that the lyrics can be interpreted in a, a variety of different mat manners, um, depending on your personal history and experience and your outlook, I guess, on the world, because that's one thing that seems to be seeping into the writing a little bit more than, say, with a concept album, your, your last album, which was the final part of the trilogy in the year 3073, um, is conceptual. This seems to be more rooted in re reality but not completely there uh would you say that's a fair assumption yeah yeah absolutely i mean the whole you know situation of what's going on in the world globally has done a you know has taken a great impact on my ly ly lyrical writing uh, mainly because you know I, I i take care of my elderly mom and what i see from her when she sees these things on television really impact me as well. Like when the Ukraine thing started, her reaction to it was very telling and I'll get to that later. But oh, those kinds of things really like inspired me lyrically because when I saw how some of those things impacted her, impacted other members of my family, impacted my neighbors and stuff like that. When I talked to some of them, uh, I really thought it might be a good idea to kind of put some of these thoughts into lyric. Do you think the pandemic has also affected you? You know, we've been locked down for, you know, quite an extended period of time. Did that make you look more inside when you're doing writing, um, you know, personal growth? Do, do you think that perhaps has had an impact on you as well? Absolutely. I, I definitely think that the pandemic has done lots of things, uh, lots of different things to lots of different people. You know, I, I think that some people... Uh, really came out of it on the other side really hurt by it mentally or physically or whatever it may be emotionally uh, other people took it as a way to kind of inspire themselves to like live every day to the fullest because you never know when something might not you know continue the next day all right uh, so people took it very much in different ways and you know i wanted to kind of approach it that way as well with some of the lyrics i mean we'll when we get to each song i'll get into a bit more detail of what each song kind of how it was inspired in that way. 
So in between wrapping up uh, 3073 Book 3, you've done Chiroscuro with Dark Monarchy, and now Mm -hmm. What Lies Beyond. When did you start working on this project? Do you wait for Dark Monarchy to be finished, or do you have ideas that are being generated during other projects that you say, no, I'm putting that aside until I get to it later? How how does the whole project start? Um. Oscuro there uh, I had I know that we were going to do just CD with Dark Monarchy we're kind of like at just the tip of having enough people involved like support wise that we can maybe do a vinyl sooner than later with some of this stuff but we knew we were going to go this time one more time with CD so that got done rather quickly that's usually like a two or three week wait and then I got the stuff so the big thing was I was waiting for months for the vinyl of book three and while I was waiting for that, I was getting increasingly frustrated waiting for it. So I decided to to, to, to to get some of my frustrations out. The best thing to do is to grab my guitar, sit down, hit record on my Pro Tools, and just play and see what comes out of it. And that's 95% of the ways I write my songs, is just to sit there, let it run, hit my, grab my guitar, and that's it. And I, what was really different about this time around compared to all my other Project Gemini albums is I kept it very under the radar. Usually when I do a Project Gemini album, I say, hey, I'm working on a record. This week I did drums, and this is what I did here and there. This week I did this, and this time I decided I'm just going to keep it quiet because at first I didn't know if any of the stuff that I was going to record was going to mean anything if not just a tension relief for me. So once I started working on it and I realized, hmm, I got some pretty decent parts here I started constructing them and it ended up that uh by about October because I think on my chart there I I think I started this in September 24th of last year I started dabbling with it and by you know near near November so I was pretty solid and convinced of what I had you know written so uh yeah I kind of did it under the radar and I kind of did it because I was waiting for the vinyl. The vinyl, the, that wait was so brutal for me that I just decided I was going to just write another record in the meantime. And I did literally write and almost completely mix a whole record by the time that vinyl came. That's insane, that delay. I mean, you were getting really frustrated by that. Um, but I, I was shocked when you dropped the completed track sheet, tracking sheet with all your X's filled in, and you're like, it, it's essentially done. Um, a new album coming out. I, I was like, wow, when do, you get, when do you find the time to work on this creatively, let alone recording it, but just to have the time to come up with you know, the number of tracks that you have done. But this isn't a follow-up to Man of Science, is it? I, there's some similarities that I kind of note and some of the themes and maybe they're just part of your dna this is very much a standalone um non-thematic album that doesn't have a you know predecessor or prequel yeah you're absolutely right there's no connection to man of science man of science man of dreams was pretty much an album like a like a love letter to my father who passed away because he was very much the scientist of the family he had done a lot of scientific things and even up to the time that he passed away he had worked at a research and development company you know, for longest time in his 80s, this guy was still working, you know, uh, doing stuff because he loved science so much. So I wanted to give, make that record as kind of a tip of the hat to my father. So this is totally separate to that. Yeah, because, you know, the first track, Cyber Wonderland, I was like, oh, virtual reality. That, that's the only reason yeah. why I go back to that album is it, I'm wondering if there was a connection. But how do you want to differentiate uh, what lies beyond from the previous now? You've got Ordinary Day, Brand New Day, Man of Science, uh, in the year 3073, 1, 2, 3, um, and your compilation. Uh, you've got quite a catalog. Where and how do you differentiate it in your mind? Um, I almost kind of look at this as a start of another chapter. I kind of look at those first six as like one phase and this like a start of another. Uh, not that this is like totally radically different from anything that I've done. There are obviously, you know, elements that are you can probably see from other records within it. But um, one one thing that I had to do very much with the with the thirty seventy three albums is I had to very much think story and had to very much think, you know, in terms of songs time because I had to get these stories in and I had to make it within a forty five minute. Uh, framework because I wanted to put it out on vinyl, right? So 
there were sort of, sort of certain limitations that I had that way. Uh, the the first two albums, An Ordinary Day and Brand New Day, were essentially written at one time because it was all one story, just broken into two albums. And then Man of Science, like I said, was just a album dedicated to my father. Uh, this album, I had absolutely no restrictions on anything. If I wrote one song that was 22 minutes long, so be it. If I wrote like a bunch of songs that were two minutes long, and I had an album of like you know 15 songs that were two minutes long, that's how it would have turned out. But because of that, I felt that I gave myself more freedom to do stuff that maybe I wouldn't have done before. Like the beginning of Seed and Soil, that whole orchestra bit at the very beginning alone with nothing else in there is something that I probably would never have done on other albums, especially not in the, the book ones, because that whole minute and a half that that's played there, I could have, you know, I would think, oh, I have to tell the story within that time. I don't want to leave that with just instrumental. I could be telling something lyrically there. You know what I mean? So I there was always some kind of restriction in those records, not in a bad way, but just in songwriting ways. But this one, there's, there's nothing. That's why I ended up having a four song record essentially on vinyl, because two of the songs are well over 10 minutes long. So well over in one case you know yeah. th last month was the sixth anniversary of the release of the first uh, project gemini album an ordinary day are you still using the same technology as when you started then and and if not what has changed between your recordings for that album and this one um good question um when i started doing those albums <clears throat> I was using more kind of like standalone, uh, like compressors, like tube compressor things that I would plug into my uh, digital audio interface. And while that worked pretty well, and I was pretty used to doing it that way for that album, and I think even for a little bit of Man of Science, I used that. Uh, by the time I was halfway through Man of Science, what changed was I got a, a separate board, like a mixer board. And even for up to this point here now, uh, there were things that have changed. I've gotten like a, the guy, a keyboard has come in in between. Uh, I've updated some of my microphones, you know, because back from those first couple of records, I was just pretty much using an SM57 and an Audio-Technica, I think 2020 microphone for vocals. So that was pretty, pretty basic. No, I would say basic, but pretty, you know, easy to afford equipment and I thought it turned out still pretty decent all the same because I've always said this to many people before it's not the equipment it's the person using it right you can get the most expensive gear in the world and if you don't know how to use it properly it'll still it'll sound like bunk I don't care if it's a $60,000 microphone right so uh, luckily because I was trained in this and went to you know did like apprenticeship and stuff like that in sound engineering I had some knowledge in how to use this stuff so but to answer your stuff, some stuff stayed the same. Like I still have my handy dandy EX7 keyboard here that I've used for a lot of stuff because there's a lot of analog type synth sounds in there that I can't find better sounds of, to be quite honest with you, than that. So why get rid of it if you know what, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? So uh, and like I said, the main thing that's updated is you know I got other guitars in between. I got that SG. I got that Les Paul. Uh, there were just minor things that got changed uh, because, and, and I'll be totally honest, there's been so many times during this, you know, this whole recording thing that I've been doing where I said to myself, I'm going to go buy myself some new speaker monitors. And I haven't went out and do it because every time I decided to go and do it, the first thing that enters my mind is my my old uh, guy who was training me at the studio in Studio A there, he always goes, when you buy new speakers, you have to give yourself a bit of time to get used to them before you start working on them because it's going to be a different sound experience, right, when you get a new set of speakers. And, he, and I was asked him, well, how long does it take? He goes, well, it depends on how many records you get to sit down and listen to, you know, within like a couple of weeks' time. Then you'll get used to the, to the sound differential, and then you can start working on it. I was like, oh, shit. Every time I thought of that, <laughs> I'm like, great. That means I'm going to have to wait four weeks before I start anything. And I always get deferred from it. No, I'm not going to touch them. They still work good. I can still read everything decent. You know what I mean? So I want to upgrade stuff. 
like on my list, I want to grab a couple of more microphones. I want to maybe upgrade my my mixer console too because this one's starting to get a little beat up a bit now. The tube is getting a little eh, touchy on this one. But again, I'm one of those people where it's like the very thought of being offline for a week or two is like I start uh, like getting all nervous about it, you know. <laughs> cold, cold sweat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, what about um, your? Do you have a, a guitar that you'd say was your primary guitar for this project? Or is it simply uh, a tool? Each one has its own tool. Um, they're pretty much tool, I would say. But the one guitar that is surprisingly featured more on this album than ever before was my Strat. I have a 1999 Fender Stratocaster. And that thing, it, it's... It's well worked in. Let's just put it that way. Uh, I've used that one as far back as Piledriver. It went with me to Europe and all over the place when I was on tour. But what I like about that guitar is it's modded. I, I took out the single coil out of the back and put in a crazy, uh, I think it was a Seymour Dunk. No, it's a, a DiMarzio uh, humbucker from hell in the back. So it's really unstrat-like, but I have the two front pickups so I can still get those strat tones if, if it if I so desire. And because of the clean sounds in here, there's quite a bit of acoustic guitar, clean guitar blend on this record. And that's why that guitar used quite a bit. And I ended up using it on a few guitar solos too. Otherwise, for most of the rhythm tracks, I used my Les Paul, but for clean tones, like clean electric tones, and some of the lead work, I did use the Strat, which was surprising. What do you like for your strings? What gauge? Uh, I usually, I like 9 to 42s. Uh, before I was a 10 to 52 player, but now that my, I got a little bit uh, bothersome arthritis a bit in some of the joints, you know, the heavier strings are getting a little bit uh, fatiguing sometimes, you know. I don't have to go down to 8s or anything crazy like that, but, you know, 9 to 42 is usually my sweet spot. And do you change before a project, change string, restring for a fresh project? Is that, that how you approach yeah. things? Yeah, especially especially on bass guitar, I always have a couple of packs of uh, the Roto Sound swing bass ones because hey, if it's good enough for Chris Squire, it's good enough for me. So I I grab those packs. I have a two or three of them, and every time I go to a next record, I put on a fresh pair of strings. And I you know I have a couple of boxes of guitar strings. I'm I'm an Ernie Ball guy as far as strings go. So. I I think I think the ones I use the nines the nines of forty twos I think are the pink pack so yeah that's what uh, I play yeah there you go great minds think alike <laughs> so if I can't play worth a damn um, last question about the your outboard gear and and that do you have a Mellotron? No, I don't have a Mellotron, but this thing actually has a really good replica, replica, replication of a Mellotron. It has some good strings good flute and there's actually a good choir patch in there and i think it actually says mellow choir on there so it's actually supposed to be the right of it of course look i'm not kidding myself a real mellotron is going to sound a bit different than what i have there too i'm, I'm not kidding myself but it's, it's pretty close you know yeah, I, I was just wondering that. I have a friend who also makes music who got a mellotron and went absolutely into the rabbit hole that a Mellotron provides. <laughs> um, and it was really fascinating to hear. Let's talk about some of these songs. You lead off with a very strong track, which is also the first single from the album, Cyber Wonderland. And what I love about this is the guitar tone on the intro. What effects are you running for some of those sounds? Uh, actually, the funny thing is for the tone for that is more or less, and this is a handy thing for people if you're recording to, to do this. Uh, it's a combination of two guitars. So what I did is I tracked two guitars, one left, one right in the stereo field on my Les Paul using a Marshall JCM 800 tone. Okay. Recorded that. Then I went back. I grabbed my, my Gibson sg and i recorded another pair left right but this time through a mesa boogie sounding amp right and the mesa boogie was really like like really hefty and you know chunky and ballsy and the marshall was a little bit more thinner like more acdc ish in tone but when you go in there and start blending in like hey a little bit more 
rectifier, a little bit more martial. And then you find that spot where you're like, aha, that's the sound I'm looking for. You just do that on the left side, do it on the right side, and that's the sound. The only thing that I did as far as any sort of effect is I put a little, little, little hint of a chorus on the one, one of the sets of guitars. And that's, that's two it. separate takes because that is an effect oh, yeah. in itself that it, two yeah. takes are not perfectly synchronized. Exactly. That ju- yeah. That's the X factor that gives it the character. So that, that's, yeah. a, that's a really cool approach and a lot of detail into going into just one guitar sound. Bass. Oh my yes. God, that is so latter-day Getty Lee Rush, the sound on that intro bass. And that's just from my wheelhouse and my vocabulary of what I get out of it. I love the thickness of that sound as well and all these sounds coming together. Uh, talk about that bass a bit. Well, the bass that I use is my Ibanez SR400 bass. It is an active bass that has like a three-band equalizer on there, you know, the high, mid, the bass. Uh, and, you know, you can divide between the two pickups on there. So that's extremely handy as well. Uh, I've learned my lesson a long time ago. Again, I hear my teacher in the, in the sound engineering part say, never ever go too heavy with the bass. The bass guitar in itself has enough bass that you don't need to add bass to it, which is a lesson that I've never been more grateful that I've learned because a lot of people before always think that, you know, I'm going to put nine, like, you know, if, when it goes from zero to 10 in the degree most people put like eight nine on their bass and then it's like whoa like there's so much bottom end on it but record it flat i always record my bass guitar flat because hey you have an equalizer that you can use afterwards to sculpt it to what you need right so i always record it flat i use my di i have a really nice uh, active di box that i plug into and i go di straight into the mixing console I activate the tube that is in here because you can use it or not use it on the board. So I always activate the tube in there to give it a little bit more of a tube sound. But the main thing was I wanted to sculpt it going in to a certain sound, which was leave the bottom end flat, jack up a bit of the 1 to 2K range of the bass guitar a bit. So because I wanted a little bit more of this sound, like a little bit more nasally in there because... When you have four tracks of guitars and then like 12, 13 channels of drums, you know, the bass guitar can get lost really quickly. And here's another little trick. I duplicated the track that I recorded. I duplicated it. And that duplicated track, I took all the bottom end out of it. Like it sounded really like Radio Shack radio, almost like terrible bass. But I put a ton of distortion on it and compressed it a lot more. And again, between the two sounds, I brought in just enough of that distorted sound where it starts giving that Getty Lee kind of growl and kind of pop out in there. And that's what it is. Getty Lee, Chris Squire, all these people that do that, they add an element of distortion or overdrive to their sound on there. It's not completely consumed in it. It's like a separate sound that they use, whether they split their channels up or whether they just record two separate takes of it, which they don't don't normally do. They, if they're going to do something like that, they probably just take a stereo out and do one of them distorted, one of them clean, which is essentially what I did there. So the, the bass guitar turned out really good. And another important trick with that too, when I, and this happened in the mix stage of it, is the one sound that was the cleaner tone, I added a nice little bit of chorusing on it, a la Chris Squire in there as well. And that really kind of gave the upper end a little bit more jump out to it, but it, it wasn't brittle. It sounded nice and clear. So that's a, that's a, a whole lot of nice commentary on just the very beginning of the album and first song because it settles down, <laughs> you know, into a very nice musical landscape. Um, but quickly, I mean, lyrically, um, the dichotomy of the online experience, cyber wonderland. I mean, it really is kind of yin and yang, um, digital realm and the chains that it kind of, it gives us freedom, but also enslaves us. Um, it really seems very per- pervasive in our existence these days. And uh, that's why it's nice to see you kind of musically being observational about it. Where Where is your inspiration coming from with the song? Um, initially, the... The inspiration came from an article I read at a National Geographic magazine. This is a little while back, actually. I was at the 
local uh, bookstore chapters there. And I was waiting for a friend of mine and I went to the magazine area and I saw this magazine there and it was talking about computer technology. So I was flipping through it and they had an interesting article there and there was a line in there that kind of really took my eye when I saw it, the quote there was, when medical technology fails, will we will we go to cyber technology? And I was like, what is he talking about? So I went over there and read it in more detail. And they were saying like nowadays, you know, with all kinds of situations, there's a there's a quite a bit of increase in, uh, unfortunately, with mental health problems with younger people and stuff like that. And there's depression has gotten up over the last you know dozen years. People have gotten more depressed over the years, whether just for whatever for whatever reasons, and a lot of the times people find an out try to find an outlet to help them in that stuff now what they were saying in that article was that the first reaction is to go medically to try to help yourself out of these situations but what they were finding in some of this research that they'd done is that a lot of younger generation people were finding that video games were an outlet for them to escape some of these things that were bothering them mentally and so they would go escape into these worlds but the problem with that is that some of them went way overboard with it. There was like a story of a child, or a, not a child, but like a teenager who was playing video games up to 10 to 12 hours a day, and he got so overboard in it that he would bring a bottle of pop with him, drink it, and when he had to go to the washroom, rather than stop playing, he would just take a leak into this bottle that was sitting <laughs> beside him so he didn't have to go out of the room. He could just continue to play. So that's really hardcore sort of dedication to that sort of thing. And the funny thing is, I don't know if you saw this commercial, but there's this hilarious video of Ozzy Osbourne with this sort of AI. The virtual headset yeah, on. Yeah, virtual things on. And he's playing. And then at the end yep. of the commercial, you see there's an empty house with just him in there. And while that's supposed to be comical, it's sort of ironic because it's almost what I'm trying to say is that sometimes people get so lost in this that that could very well happen. People could lose their jobs, you know, you know. Maybe they could they'll have their house taken away because they they have no jobs anymore, and they're just so wrapped up in this world that they could lose their family, they could lose everything because they get so so wrapped up in this stuff. It's, it's something that I think that people have to be very careful of. It video games can be very addicting. I well, think. go back and watch The Matrix again. I mean, from when we were growing up, our age group, we were looking up. Everyone's looking down now. You get on a bus and everyone's looking down. There are no, you know, kind of conversations going on. It, yeah. it, it very much where we've never been more alone than in a world where we're so connected. Is... Absolutely. That's a great line. That's a great line. I stole that from someone. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, still, it's still a great line because, I mean, and, and I said that too in one of these little advertisements that I did. Was it advert or maybe it was an interview, but I was saying that, uh, the, the, this whole thing about being more comfortable on the online world than with people face to face. Like sometimes people are so comfortable online, they'll reveal their deepest, darkest things on there, which is very dangerous. You don't know who you're talking to sometimes on the other end, you know? And if you're telling people personal things about your life, that might not be a good thing, you know? And they glorify it these days with like television programs like Catfish. You know, the, those sorts of, of creepy setup type things. So, you know, Cyber Wonderland, it is a wonderland. But I think that's also a, a, a very good point to make that it is still a wonderland. And that's coming from the Alice. Um, well, we'll talk about Alice a bit more later. But um, this is only a five-minute song. I was very impressed, Mark. A five-minute song. Um, almost radio-friendly single length. Was it? Does it take an effort to keep a song to five minutes or... Are you religious about the song telling you its duration? Um, I usually let the song tell me what it wants to be, but I just had this feeling that how I constructed it was the perfect life because there was still a voice saying, we could still add another part or two. There's still a space here where we can put in another bridge or something. And I was like, you know what? I, I want to have a couple of songs in my catalog that are not overly long you know what i mean I, I have very few songs that are four minutes in length on my in my whole catalog so uh having a five minute exact song is sort of a accomplishment for me to be honest 
Well, the next one makes up for it because uh, the Angel Scream clocks in at nearly 15 minutes. It's an epic, uh, roughly two and a half minute instrumental to begin, which is gorgeous. Uh, congratulations on that. But then it becomes very apocalyptic in a sense. Um, this one seems to draw very much on a cornucopia of current affairs, all blended into kind of the mess that this world is in today. Uh, do you feel a concern of that seeping into your writing? And does it concern you as an artist when the outside world is becoming an inspiration? Yeah, that's, that's a good question because I've always been one of these people who have said, and this is going to sound really hypocritical now, that musicians shouldn't be politicians and while saying that now, on one hand, I can't help but feel I'm, I'm getting a little political sometimes in my own writings now. But, uh, you know, the, 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 the thing is, I, I'm very affected by these sorts of things. And I'm affected by the fact, again, by, for example, my mother. I'll never forget the day when Russia rolled into Ukraine. I was sitting in the living room. My mother was there with me. And the news came on. They were talking about it. And my mom's face just completely went like a face I've hadn't seen her had for a long time. And we talked about it later and she referred back to her memories of when Russia rolled into Czechoslovakia in the sixties when she was living there with my father and how they escaped with one suitcase each and got the hell out of there, you know? And she said that she just can't help but feel for those people because she knows at least she suspects that she knows what's going to happen or how they're going to feel and what the situations will be like, because she feels it mirrors a lot of what happened back then too. Yeah. Right? She knows, she knows and understands that fear firsthand. Yes. And you as a, a son are observational on, you, you know, your mother. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And her, and I, and that's the one thing that I had the, the great benefit of is having her there as a firsthand experienced storyteller of what happened and how you know, how it affected the people around her, her loved ones and family and friends. And, you know, and I put that very much into those lyrics. I mean, you could, if you wanted to, approach these lyrics into many other kind of situations as well. You know, it doesn't only have to be about the Ukraine thing. It could have been about, you know, the, the, the Gulf War. Or it could have been about any other kind of situation. But mainly, that was the inspiration for it. And I also wanted very much to try put at least a little bit of not positivity but showing that there is some some light in there as well like that line that i put in there uh the children laugh and play in the broken playground and the parents uh, uh pray in the broken church grounds i would like that kind of parallel where even in something like this the innocence of children will still try to find something where they can you know find some joy in it, even if it's a busted playground where they can all go together and play and laugh and escape a little bit of the, you know, bleakness for a while. And then how the parents will try to find solace somewhere, even if it's a busted church where they can just go in there. And because it was a church at one time, they can find almost some sort of security there and pray and hope for something better in those areas. You know what I mean? I like the playground lyric because it's a reminder that life goes on. Um, you know, even in the most dire circumstances, people are still living and people are still being born. And, you know, so and children are still playing. You know, I was watching something a, a week ago about the bomb shelters um, in England during mm. World War Two. And people would get the, the bomb warnings. Everyone would trundle on down there. And then life would continue, you know, underground, even with all the horrors going on above. And, and what I find with your lyrics is I, I know you, you had mentioned that you were writing a little bit more about current affairs, but they're still observational, not pontifications uh, with any yeah. sense of bias. So I, I don't think you have to fear writing that sort of style, because no matter what, someone's always going to be offended by something anyway. But I think you're being true to yourself as well as knowing that look on your mother's face. Um, there's a lot of dynamic shifts and time changes in this, uh, but I really like the chorus. Um, so while it's 15 minutes, 
I, I think a number is just an arbitrary thing at the end of the day because all of your songs seem to have sections that even if it's yeah. f- the track is 15 minutes, it's a combination of multiple songs, usually that has a beginning and then comes back around to an ending. So uh, great title. What does Thank When you. Angels Scream mean? Uh, well, it's I almost kind of like a play on words where uh, on one end, I, I was so used to hearing that term, uh, the angels sing. I always remember hearing people saying, you know, whether it's in church or reading in books, saying, you know, the angels sang and this and that. And I always thought that the play on it, the angels screamed, seemed very, like, impactful, like almost horrific. That to imagine an angel screaming. It's almost like a Doctor Who thing with those, uh, remember those with those weeping angels characters that they had in the new Doctor Who. Uh, it almost reminds me of those kind of characters. But the 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 thing is to uh, I remember in one of the news broadcasts, they were talking about, uh, they were talking actually to one of the people that survived a, a bombing that happened. And they said that they're trying to find their family members and that they heard these screams coming from underneath the buildings. And the one girl said that when the, the kids were screaming, it almost sounded like angels screaming. And I never forget when she said that, that very much stuck in my head that hearing a bunch of children screaming sounded more like angels. You know, because you always think of your children as angels, your little angel and stuff like that, right? So it's kind of an interesting dynamic when you would say the angels were screaming, when you know, when you think of it that way. Yeah, I like to think of it, you know, in terms of we have our inner voices. We've got our good voice, our 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 naughty or yes. evil voice, our our angel and our demons. And sometimes mm-hmm. our our voice, the demons, always fighting for dominance. But sometimes the angel screams. That's that's kind yeah, of where I went one. with it. Um, Seed and soil. I really like this one. It's another you know shorter song, um, comparatively speaking, uh, but it breaks the. It, it adds a nice touch of pacing to the album for you to have a longer song and a shorter song on what I guess would be each side of a, of a physical vinyl. But you, you mentioned it earlier, the orchestral textures at the beginning of this are just spectacular. They're very unexpected, but the guitars in combination with that are really gorgeous. But this song for me has your best guitar work on it, on the album in this song and i love the seed and we are the the lords of seed and soil it it just that that spoke to me Uh, tell us about this song it's interesting see what i when i write my lyrics one of the things that always gets me excited is what other people's interpretations of the lyrics are i've always found that something that i always really got off on like what do these people think i'm talking about and a lot of the times you know people get very close or if not pretty much dead on with the you know meaning of the songs uh, in this one, uh, once again, here in Canada, we have our kind of interesting uh, problems, let's just say. And uh, one of the problems that are coming up, especially in our province where I live in Ontario, is uh, here we go with the politics. Uh, our guy, our premier, on his election campaign, swore that he would not touch any of our forested areas and not bother with, you know, deforestization and all that stuff that they would leave with, because that's a big thing here. You know, we love our forest lands. We love our lakes and stuff like that. We have beautiful land and country here, okay? And people are getting very protective of it. And he swore we will not touch it. A few months later, after he gets elected, you know, there's news of him coming in with bulldozers to make a huge housing complex. We need to house people. We are getting more people. There's lots more immigration coming in and stuff like that. And the thing that's very alarming and what made me write this was that they're trying to squeeze out farmers off their land. Farmers who have been there for generations and generations. That's one of the opening lyrics. I lived here 30 years, passed from father to son, the, the, the land, right? And they're trying to get these people off of this land so that they can build apartment buildings and housing complexes and estates and stuff like that because we have to house people. And I said, okay. And I don't know if you've seen one of my little commercials for the songs that I put up these little 30 second things. And one of them I put there, what's more important, housing or food? You know, now, sure, we can house everybody. But what happens when the land that we need to grow food is gone because we've now have enough housing for people? What are we going to eat now? You know, like that dynamic is something that's very much front and center. You can eat silent, silent green. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? And I mean, I put a picture of like empty sh- shelves in grocery stores like that's a that's a 
possibility. You know, Which we, we've right actually now. seen over the past few years, when you think about it. I'm sure you went into stores in Canada just as much as in the, in the States here, and there would be empty shelves. Mm, I, I yes. mean, that, that I never thought I'd see in this country. I've seen it elsewhere. Um, so it is, is shocking. And you do, I, what I took out of the Lords of Seed and Soil, Seeds and Soil, um, it was kind of the multinational corporations, the billionaires clubs who think that all resources on this planet belong to them. You know, where we see that in the States now that investment bankers buying up water rights, not for yeah. the water or to shut down the farmland so they could sell the water rights for a profit to cities that are, you know, in drought. So yeah. it, it does speak to current affairs, but it's such a beautiful song to do so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> thank you. I, I, I do appreciate that. But, but I mean, that's the thing. That's what I'm so happy about, that you took that message from it. And there's there's no way that that could be wrong. I mean, because that's your view on it. And there is no right and wrong to the message. The message is how you interpret it. And I've always been very supportive of that opinion and view on that, that if that's what you seriously think the song is about, so be it. And that's your meaning of that song. But when I wrote that, that was what inspired me to do it. I mean, a lot of people also thought that I was talking about the the the, the ever-growing battle with the native Indian people, uh, the Aboriginal people, and the government here. How sometimes they feel they're being pushed out of their land and stuff like that. That could also be taken within that as well, right? So it's, there's no right and wrong to it. But my inspiration came directly from that because I, I, I'll never forget when I heard that first news broadcast and I thought to myself, that son of a bitch, he just said that he wasn't going to do that. And he's already now going back on his word. And he's, you can already see him with the the cloth on his head, you know, no, uh, I didn't really mean that in this context, you know, he's already backpedaling like crazy. Politicians you know, so. and their lie holes. They only have one. Well, they have two lie holes, one on each <laughs> end. And it's pretty much the same coming in as going out. Um, exactly. I'm free. I love the vocal. Where's your vocal booth? My vocal booth. You, you, you're gonna you're gonna laugh at this. My vocal booth is right here. No, I I'm not. Gonna, I'm not gonna laugh at it. I mean, I know Steven Tyler run ran mics up to his bathroom for one album because he liked the sound he was getting while singing in the bathroom. Um, so you don't have baffles. You don't have dividers. Right there. That's how you get those beautifully clean well, vocals. What I basically do is that microphone over there. That's my uh, U47 mic that I have there. I put it here on the stand, but I face myself this way. There's a corner here, okay? And when they always tell you never sing or do something on a flat wall. Do it on a corner, right? So yep. when sound I sing waves. this way, yeah, then the sound waves disperse differently. But the main thing too, and people sometimes forget this, is that if you, if you put your, the closer you put yourself into a mic, the less of the surrounding room you'll get into the sound, right? If I go back here, put the mic over here and start singing, I'll start getting the room in as well, right? So, you know, th th this song was a bit of a challenge for me, but I was very happy with the end result because I really wanted to do a song finally that was a little bit more revealing vocally, like that was a little bit more stripped down, not so much around me, where it was just, you know, guitar at first and you know it's very basic this this song like the very top of it it sure gets more wrapped up with sound afterwards but the the, the whole hello alice bit uh, i thought I, I i did that pretty well for myself you know but it's also a self-contained story which yeah. is what i like about this song and just the hello alice you know kind of plaintive sadness and then telling a story uh, do you sing sitting or standing up both both i i i do uh most of the time if it requires something that's like that needs a little bit more volume or a little bit more longer notation i'll stand for it but i i was told lots of times from this one teacher that i went to that you can sing decently in a sitting position as long as you you support your diaphragm right well yeah so, your, your back will raise up so yeah. you're getting full oxygen in yeah so sometimes i do that here and, and in a sitting position, mainly because if I have to do something where I have to do, let's say, uh, an edit in a certain part and I want to punch in something, then I'll do it in, from a sitting position. But most of the time, I like to just do it from a standing position and 
record it and then just fix whatever, like, you know, take out this part and redo it here and there just afterwards, right? But most of, most of the time standing. Let's move into the most unfairly ever categorized song called a bonus track. <laughs> I, it seems an insult to art to call Brutal World a bonus track, Mark. That is such a super strong song. I, I'm not surprised you call it a bonus track because I can see you be, I can't get rid of it. I can't include it. I can't get rid of it. How much did that song make you ping pong? And what ended up making that the bonus track rather than one of the other songs on the album? Mm. <clears throat> That's a good question. Well, when I, when I, see, here's the thing that I do. I write, I mix, master, and then when it's done, now I say, okay, what's going to go on the record now? Okay. I knew right away Cyber Wonderland was going to go on. I thought it was very strong. I thought right away, this is the first song I'm going to release from this for sure it's staying. Seed and Soil was the other one that I thought for sure was something that I wanted, especially once Joe, and I have to emphasize, Joe Bailey is the one who did all those orchestration bits. That's not me. Joe did all that. Okay. He did, a, he did a beautiful job. Absolutely fantastic work, Joe. Yeah, and you know that's why our Dark Monarchy sounds the way it does is because of his orchestration. But um, that song I wanted on, so we have a six and a half minute song, five minute song. So, and I really loved the way the Angel Scream came out. So I thought, okay, I'm gonna have to put that on there. Now that's already fourteen and a half minutes long. On vinyl, they tell you once you get to twenty minutes, it's eh, eh, alarm bells already. So. I add the five-minute song. We're at 19 and a bit, just under the thing there. And I can already hear Kevin, the guy who does my lacquer cutting, saying, very good. You kept it under 20 minutes. He's always pissed at me when I make them longer, right? So that was side A. Now we, now we get to side B. And I had the six-minute song. And if I put in Brutal World, it would be like 15 minutes aside, that side. And I was like, that's too short. I can't do, I can't leave it like that. But if I add any of the other songs that I have, because I have, I have some other songs that will appear on that bonus disc that's going to be in with the vinyl. If I put that on on there, it it, ne it doesn't work as too long. Or if I take Brutal World out and put it on nose, it's still too short. The only option I really had, and I was happy because I loved the way I, I'm Free came out, was to put that 11 minute song in. Because when I put that in there, now we're closer to 18 minutes. And again, I could hear Kevin saying, very good. We can make a really good lacquer side of this one because I have a little extra space and the vinyl's gonna sound fantastic. And that's also why I decided to do that bonus disc because I know when I got the new Yes album, they had a bonus disc that came with it uh, of, the, of some bonus songs as well as the album. But I thought it was a good idea to put it on CD because at least then you could have them and it's not a waste you know, having them not being used, right? I thought I was very happy with the songs, the other ones, and, you know, you guys will get to hear them soon as well. Uh, but that was the way I had to structure it to make it into the vinyl version that I wanted. But I, but Brutal World was such a good song, I thought, and I enjoyed it so much. Every time I listened to it in the car, I'm like, God, this is really killing me that I'm not going to have this on the record. But I said, you know what? Screw this. For the CD version I'm going to put it on there as a bonus because with CD, you can get away with like 70 minutes, even though I'll never do a CD that long in my life. Um, but I said, I, I have the space for it. I can put it on here. So I thought that it was, with that on there, it was just long enough uh, album without it being too long because I don't like long albums because I know people's attention spans start waning after a certain bit of time. So I'm always very conscious of that. So... I'm, I decided to put Brutal World in there. Well, congratulations on all of it. I, I mean, what I did, my listening experience, you know, to prepare for this was the full album multiple times, multiple times. And then I cut out Brutal World, you know, for my mm -hmm. final listens, just so I would have that experience of what the, the four songs on the vinyl are going to be as, as much mm -hmm. as I can duplicate in the digital world. Um, you know, you, you say that you'll never have a CD length CD, but I, I still think, you know, your digital only release that was um, your pop parade release tomorrow. What was yes, it called? Yes. You know, tomorrow, 
Oh, shit. I forget. I don't even <laughs> You're like me with my Tomorrow's books. Another like, day. Tomorrow's, Tomorrow's another day. day. Yeah, I, I wouldn't mind seeing a, a physical release like that from you because you've had all these Christmas EPs. You've uh, done remixes um, of several of the, you know, early, six years ago, um, songs. You've got bonus tracks. Um, and I know it becomes a little stickier on some of the other bonus tracks that you've included in various projects with them being covers, perhaps. But, you know, there, there's so much. And what amazes me after six years is the amount of music that you're generating, which still has fresh ideas in it. What what keeps you motivated? Um, new New music from other artists is one thing that kind of keeps me motivated, too. Uh, politicians just, yeah yes yes politicians keep me very motivated they always give me lots of lyrical ideas for sure but you know what what i like doing is uh i go on youtube sometimes and i just put into the search like classic prog albums and all of a sudden they'll, they'll, some record will come up from like 1977 from some band that had one release that i've never heard of i'll put it on like oh this is this is interesting like i'm not trying to go backwards to get ideas but sometimes a record that I've never heard of before is a good way to get inspired. But I I don't like getting trapped in that situation where it's always something old. I like trying to find new stuff to see what the new generation is coming up with. And you know, sometimes I'll I'll find a record that comes that came out this year and it'll be totally inspiring to me, and I'll I'll be right on it. Like I'll never forget the time when uh, Stephen Wilson released. Uh, the the Raven who refused to sing when that came out that album, I had never really heard of Stephen Wilson at that time, and when I heard that record, it completely floored me. I was like, "This is a fantastic album," and it was so proggy, and he became my one of my favorite artists for a long time after that. So I, I tried to find music that I've never heard before because I have a lot of stuff that I've grown up with and that I love. I mean, I could you know. I can sing you the Black Sabbath stuff from beginning to end, backwards and forwards. I know those records intimately. You know yep. what I mean? Same with same with Rush albums, and same with Yes albums, and Genesis albums, and you know Van Halen, and I I know those things. But it's nice to go and find a record of something I'm not so familiar with that I need to sit down with and listen to it and listen to it, and it, and then it becomes one of those records as well. Nice, Mark. So. What Lies Beyond comes out April the 21st. What's on your radar next? Where um, Obviously, you have this cycle to go through, which will be your mm -hmm. digital... Uh, you're doing CD and vinyl for this as well? Yes. Yep. Yep. Oh, can't wait to see the debate about the color. Yes, that'll be another <laughs> poll that'll be up there to, to, to see the vote of who wants what color. It's always an interesting debate with that. Uh, but yeah, it'll be vinyl and CD. I, I've always do that do you think the Gemini production stuff. timelines for vinyl are getting any easier do you see that getting easier or do you see that just continuing because of demand to get worse and worse or more challenging or just more planning and patience involved um there will still be a little bit of patience needed but when i talked to anthony no william sorry william from train records uh he told me that now it's more a matter of like supply and demand it's not so much that they don't have materials and the, those kind of challenges that they had when COVID occurred when they couldn't get materials to do stuff you know uh so now he told me that it's gotten a bit better now like instead of like nine months wait or probably to like seven and a half months now so it's it's getting better he's hoping that it could, it could get even better than that but there's still going to be a little bit of a wait you know it, a lot of this is also luck as well, because sometimes what will happen is you get your lacquers done, you know, you, you send it over to those guys, and the, all of a sudden another band that's ahead of you in the queue, something will be wrong with their lacquers, and you have to get them done again. So all of a sudden you get pushed ahead of the line all of a sudden, yep. and you're like, yeah, now I can get my records quicker. So it's a little bit of that as well. So, But I, I love the end result with Train, so I'm very loyal to them doing it.
They've done a beautiful job with all of your releases to date, and that's from the consumer point of view, not the creator. Um, I've been very happy with the product I've received from you through them, um, very much so. And sorry, just one other thing to mention because you asked me what's on the horizon. Well, yeah, uh, there's something just... that you there's something that you posted this morning that I went really. Mm. Yeah, so on Record Store Day, which is the day after the 21st, which is 22nd of April, we are, are <clears throat> releasing a EP from the Dark Monarchy. Uh, and you sneaky that... buggers, just dropping <laughs> a bonus EP on people. Yes, well, I mean, this has been kind of uh, on the on the you know schedule, as they say, for a little while now. It was just a matter of when to do it because I. I put out a video at the beginning of the year where I did say that I didn't want to start doing overlapping stuff where I had like two or three projects going on at the same time because it became kind of difficult sometimes to keep track of them when, when they were so overlapping, let me tell you. Uh, so yeah, the, the, the DP is called Parts Unknown. Uh, that was Joe's idea. I, I like the title, so I agreed to do it. Steve Holland did the Love artwork the for it. the artwork is gorgeous. Yeah, he's he does a great job. This guy, I really love Steve's work. Uh, he's and with him, he's more photography than anything else. He's not a painter. He's not a, you know, that kind of, with him, his tool is the camera, and once he gets it into the Pro Tools or whatever, uh, not Pro Tools, uh, Photoshop, and those things, he can do magic with it. So I'm always happy with the stuff that he does with it. So these songs are three songs that we had recorded during the Kiro Scaro sessions. And again, it was one of those situations where like, really, we have to take these, keep these off. So, but we, now we're not so uh, leery about doing that because we always know we will do an EP eventually of those things. And we did decide that later in the year, we probably want to record the record. We probably want to release a proper CD of all those EP songs onto one CD, like one proper physical release instead of having it just digitally. So I think that's going to be a good idea to do I that. That's, that's a great idea. Yeah, because I know a lot of people like those songs uh, as well. Like I know people really enjoyed Fork in the Road. That was the one before this one that came out. So we're going to be doing that as well. Uh, but after this is done, and after I've you know settled with my pre-order for the vinyl and the CD for Project Gemini. The next thing on the schedule is Joe Bailey's next solo album. So, Looking forward to that one as well. I was going to ask you about Joe and, and what he's working on um, when you mentioned that he had done orchestration on this album for you. you know, how, how is Joe and what's he working on for his own music? Or I guess I'll have to have him on to talk about that when the time comes. Yeah, he can go into more details, but I can just tell you that from what I understand, he has his record pretty much done. Uh, right now, they're just working on artwork for it. Uh, I don't. He doesn't have any kind of title yet for it. He's very last minute when it comes to that, and I'm fine with that. Uh, but he has everything written. Uh, he's very happy with it, of course. And uh, yeah, it's going to be the next thing that comes down the line afterwards. And then once we get that done, I think we'll start looking at probably another Dark Monarchy full album. What about with uh, Mark Anthony Kay and the Lower Third Collective? Do you have any desire to do any of that style? Um... Yeah, yeah. I I did say once in one of my update videos that I do feel the urge starting to build to maybe do a couple of songs like that. And uh, if, if the if the time presents itself, like, but what sometimes happens is we'll do, let's say I do Joe's record. And once I get it, if everything goes rather quickly and we have everything goes nice and smoothly and all of a sudden if a window presents itself of like, let's say, four weeks, then I'll probably jump on it and, and do that then. But it's all dependent on that because like I said, I don't want to get into that trap of like, I'm working on this and then this and this now as well, you know, because even doing Joe's thing, I mean, I try to help him get as many interviews as possible and, you know, just help him as much as I can with the release of the record on from my end of it because I am his label, right? So uh, it requires a bit of work on my end for that as well. 
Yeah, and you have to leave time in life to walk shadow. Yes, yes, and he's he's right here. He's always my. I heard him snoring my... earlier. Yeah, he's <laughs> terrible for that. Lately, he's been doing that. I've been finding myself going back to some of my videos, my update videos, and if I stop talking, I'll hear him <laughs> snoring in there like Jesus. The worst thing is that when I'm doing a recording, and if I stop a vocal take and I hear him snoring in that, it's like, oh, great, thanks. You know? <laughs> I wasn't going to ask you whether you lock him out when you're doing your vocals. Mark, where can everyone find you? Um, last words are yours. Okay, so the best place to find is the Bandcamp page, the Project Gemini uh, Bandcamp page. Very simple. It's the only Project Gemini that there is on there, spelled P-R-O-J-E-K-T-G-E-M-I-N-E-Y-E, -E, like your I, and uh, you'll find me there. Uh, also, you can go to www.projectgemini.com. There's a very nicely done, well-constructed page there where you can see all kinds of stuff that I've done as well there uh, and also there's a Facebook group and a face group and a Facebook fan page kind of thing as well they're separate the group and the fan pages uh, but both there are there's Project Gemini stuff there there's also a Reficle Records group page as well and there's also a Dark Monarchy page as well so there's lots of places where you can contact me excellent well Mark Anthony K what Lies Beyond comes out April the 21st. Look forward to seeing other folks' reactions to the album as well. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you very much, Julian. I really appreciate it. Thank you for watching or listening to this episode. Be sure to subscribe to us, like us, or even leave us a review. You can find us and join the conversation on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs>